Hello and Chag Sameach, friends, Kevre. We are here starting another podcast in the footsteps of the Messiah, all surrounded by a sukkah on Sukkot. And I have a new friend that may chime in. Thank you, Simcha, for being here. And we appreciate your presence. So, we're going to talk about Sukkot. Uh, This is... uh, one of the psalms I discovered that is read for Sukkot is Psalm 67. Uh, so I'm going to assume that most of you know that you'll find the instructions about Sukkot in Leviticus 23, verse 33, Vaikra 33, sorry, 23, verse 33. And Sukkot is the fall celebration. Uh, it's an eight-day festival. Technically, it's seven, with the eighth day being Shemini Atzeret, and is observed for nine days outside the land of Israel. The first seven days are observed by dwelling in the sukkah, which can be translated hut or booth, uh, preferably not tabernacle, because the tabernacle is translated in Hebrew as mishkan, and that's a very different dwelling. So rejoicing with the symbols of agricultural life, we use something called a lulav, that's Lamed Vav, Lamed Vet, which is a palm branch, combined with myrtle and hadassah, and also the fruit of a beautiful tree, as it says, in Pre-Etz Hadar, in Hebrew, in Vayikra 23, called the Etrog or Citron. Now, did you know, Simcha, that if you add up the letters of Etrog, which are Aleph, Tav, Resh, Vav, and Gimel, do you know what you come up with? You can tell me. 613. Now, why does that number sound significant? Because <laughs> that's how many commandments are in the Torah. That's how many commandments are in the Torah. Right! 613 commandments. And the etrog is supposed to be symbolic of our heart, where we store the mitzvot. Amen. And uh, anyway, I thought that was a nice aside. So each day of... And, and you know what? Let's add this up real quick. Make sure my math was right. So Aleph is 1. For those of you who may not know your numbers in Gematria, Gematria is a study of the numerical value of the Hebrew letters. Aleph is 1, Tav is 400, Resh is 200. So how much is that, Simcha? So you do the numbers again, 1, 400, and 200, so 601. Right, and then uh, Vav, 6, 6, number 7, and Gimel, and another number for Gimel. 3. Okay, so that's 610. Oh, that's only 610. Let's write this down for a second. Make sure my math is right. Aleph, 1. Tav, 400. Resh, 200. Vav, 6. And Gimel, 3. So 9 plus, yeah, 610. So where, oh, I know where the other three are. What is this branch? The Lulav. The Lulav. How many species are in the lulav? Three or four. I don't know if you... The etrog is one. Okay. And then the other three are in the lulav. Okay. That's where the other three are. Okay. Oh, the, for the 613. Right. When add them together. Right. Uh-huh. So etrog gives you 610. And the, uh-huh. when you say one, there is a, a premise, like a, a, a... There's an idea that you can count uh, a, something as one. So myrtle is one, lulav is one, and willow is one, arava. So there's your other three. Ah, All right, that's where it was. All right, so where were we? 
Each day of the holiday is marked by a procession with these symbols, and the festival culminates with a sevenfold procession on the seventh day. Simcha, what is the seventh day called? Not Shimini Atzeret. No, that's the eighth Simcha day. No. That's the ninth day. I don't know. Hoshana Rabbah. Right, Hoshana Rabbah. Yeah. In some, that means the great Hosanna. Hoshiana is the word in Hebrew, which means save, save us. us now. Yeah. And Rabbah is great. The yeah. great Hoshiana, the great call to save us now. In some ways, Sukkot, with its image of the march in the desert and our dwelling in temporary structures, marks a sense of longing, of being on the way. And the prophetic readings of these days are of the promise of redemption and the chaos that precedes it. Similarly, though, this is a time of joy, also called in Hebrew, Zaman Simchatenu, the time of our rejoicing. This is when the scroll of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, a book that faces the, de the desert of life, is read. The last day of the holiday, customarily celebrated for two days outside the land of Israel, involves none of these symbols, but is simply called in the Bible a day of assembly, Shemini Atzeret, or it could be the eighth conclusion. So the eighth day, which is a conclusion. This day has a dual quality. It includes the festival of Sukkot and is also seen as a separate festival in its own right. Later masters imagined it as a day to simply linger in God's presence without specific rituals. In the Bible, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, reports that the Torah was read and interpreted by Ezra to the returnees from exile, perhaps mid-5th century BCE, on Sukkot, and that the eighth day was set aside as a special day of prayer and study. Accordingly, the Babylonian Jewish community developed the practice of each year, completing the reading of the Torah on the last day of the festival and called the celebration Simchat Torah, rejoicing of the Torah. In this way, the season that begins with the high holy days, with their solemnity and demand for introspection, culminates with a moment of pure joy and public exuberance. The cycle of the year, the changing seasons, become signals of the march of time, of the challenge of moving through life while holding on to critical memories. The festivals teach us both about growth and change and about that which recurs again and again in our lives. Through their celebration, we enter into a Jewish narrative, face some of our own worries and fears, renew relationships, and celebrate with joy. As we enter into them, the festivals become lessons for life, touchstones in our ongoing search for meaning. That is from the Sidur Lev Shalem for Shabbat and Festivals by the Rabbinic, uh, Rabbinic Assembly. So, that was a nice introduction to Sukkot. Let's move on to something very curious I discovered yesterday. So, as you can tell, I like numbers and Hebrew letters. So, Lulav is Lamed Vav Lamed Vet. So, Lamed is 30. Help me with our math, Simcha. So, Lamed is 30. Vav is 6. How much is that? 36. Lamed and Vet is 30 plus 2? 32. 32 and 36 is... 68. 68. So we can also represent 68 with Chet and Samech, right? So Chet and Samech look very similar to a very popular word called Chesed. Chesed means mercy, but we're missing the Dalit. So when we take Lulav 
and we add Dalit to that value with two different letters that add up to the same. Chet, Samech, and Dalit give us Chesed. So Dalit is interesting because it's so important because it is, uh, the, the, the name Dalit means door. And so when you add a door to the Lulav, figuratively speaking, the letter Dalit to the same value as Lulav, you come up with Chesed, which equals 72. And when you, you have a door in your sukkah, right? So, it's like the lulav plus a door which creates a sukkah, or the door from your sukkah gives you the value of 72, which is also, there's an idea that God has 72 names which represent many of his, all of his attributes, all of his deeper attributes. So, just something deeper and a little bit more esoteric that I thought about yesterday. And all, all of those encompassing names of God's attributes tell us different sides of God's personality. So let's go over to something else I wanted to share. Psalm 67. So Psalm 67 is read at Sukkot. And let's hope I can find that spot in my book. We may have to come back to that. So Psalm 67, I believe, starts out with Yoducha. Uh, Amim Elohim Yoducha Amim Kulam which I will translate in just a moment okay so let's read Psalm 67 Simcha would you please yes I will I'm reading from the complete Jewish Bible for the leader with stringed instruments a psalm a song God be gracious to us and bless us May he make his face shine toward us, Selah, so that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples give thanks to you, God. Let the peoples give thanks to you, all of them. Let the nations be glad and shout for joy, for you will judge the peoples fairly and guide the nations on earth, Selah. Let the peoples give thanks to you, God. Let the peoples give thanks to you, all of them. The earth has yielded its harvest. May God, our God, bless us. May God continue to bless us so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. So that is a psalm that connects to Sukkot. And why do you think that is, Simcha? <laughs> because it's all about the nations. This is, this is the time of the year where we're specifically invited in. The Bible makes it very clear. And... God has always had a plan for all of the nations, and it's always been for all of us to know Him. And, uh, and now I want to ask... Oh, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, go ahead. I want to ask you a question that you like to ask me. Where <laughs> is that in the Bible? Where's what part in the Bible? That God invites all the nations to enjoy Sukkot. It's, and I'll read it for you. Zechariah chapter 14. Very good. Zechariah 14. I believe we have it right here. So... Verse 16, Then all the survivors from all of the Goyim, the nations that attacked Jerusalem, will go up from year to year to worship the king Adonai Tzvaot to celebrate Sukkot. Furthermore, if any of the nations on earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king Adonai Tzvaot, they will have no rain. 
If the Egyptians do not go up and celebrate, they will have no rain. Instead, there will be the plague that Adonai will inflict on the nations that do not go up to celebrate Sukkot. Now this will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate Sukkot. In that day, Kadosh la Adonai will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the pots in the house of Adonai will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. And so on and so forth. Now, why does Egypt get singled out there? Any ideas on that? I suppose because of their their role with, with Israel being there for all those years. I think there's something to that. The only and I, I don't know. It's something to explore more. Yeah. But I do know that uh, agriculturally, Egypt is said to not depend on rain. They depend on the Nile. Yeah. So if they didn't get rain, oh right, it wouldn't be a curse because they already don't get rain. The irrigation and water source is the Nile. That, that, that's my understanding from years back. I don't remember where I read that or heard that. But anyway, there is, it is interesting that Egypt is singled out. So maybe more on that another time. That's all I've got for that topic. So moving on to, I'd like to talk briefly about the Haftarah, which is read for uh, Sukkot. And we've got for day one, uh, the first day is Zechariah 14, 1 through 21, which we read part of. So let's hear why from the Etz Haim Torah and Commentary. The reading is one of the latest examples of biblical prophecy. This is about Zechariah 14, 1 through 21 as the Haftarah for Sukkot. Dating from sometime after 518 BCE, it originally concluded the visions and oracles anthologized as the prophecies of Zechariah. This Haftarah is marked by a strong tone of impending doom and purification, a repeated emphasis on that day, in quotes, mm. of divine judgment conveys a tone of expectation and inevitability. Mm. The city of Jerusalem stands at the center of these prophecies, having a pivotal place in the wars to come and in the universal pilgrimage proclaimed for all nations. When the battles conclude, the Lord will be acknowledged king, and all peoples will be invited to celebrate the festival of Sukkot in Jerusalem. The Haftarah begins with the siege of Jerusalem by all the nations, and it ends with their survivors being invited to Jerusalem for a sacred convocation and worship at the Feast of Sukkot. Looting and plunder, verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, give way to a forecast of the security of Jerusalem and its religious centrality for all. Marking this transition is a shift from the wars of the Lord and is an army of holy beings, Kedoshim, to the peace of Jerusalem, in which even the most common objects and utensils will be Kadosh la Adonai, holy to the Lord. Significantly, little is said here of the Israelites themselves or of their worship, whereas much is made of the nations who will bow before the Lord in Jerusalem year by year. The elevation of the Lord as king over all the earth is clearly of major concern to the prophet as is the centrality of the house of the Lord for all nations. In that day there shall be one Lord with one name. Verse 9. The immediacy of the forecast is registered by repetitions of the word day. There will be a day coming, says the prophet, a day of plunder and Yeshua, salvation. A day of continuous light and fresh waters. 
a day of divine kingship and the sanctification of everything in Jerusalem. These days combine in the course of the prophecy to produce one extensive day when the darkness of doom will pass and a transcendent radiance will illumine the earth. Beyond the terrifying clamor of battles and death, Zechariah envisages a time of unearthly splendor, a day when there shall be neither sunlight nor cold moonlight, but there shall be a continuous day. Creation is therewith reversed and transformed. God's first light will shine again and evermore, without setting or dawning. In this era, heavenly splendor will illumine all things. It is the time of God's universal kingship. Along with the elemental quality of light, Zechariah's prophecy focuses on the life-saving nature of water. It comes to first expression through a prediction that in the day that is coming, fresh water will flow from Yerushalayim to the eastern and western seas throughout the summer and winter seasons. This image harks back to Ezekiel's vision of a stream of water issuing from before, below the platform of the new temple and flowing outward to heal the natural world, Ezekiel 47, 1-12. It recalls the primordial streams of Eden, Genesis 2, 10-14, and dramatizes the temple as a veritable paradise at the center of the world. Zechariah's prophecy of Jerusalem is nourished by this mythic figure. However, as an image of earthly bounty, the blessing of streams and flowing waters derives from regions like Mesopotamia, nourished by underground fountains and mountain torrents, ancient Israel, where the waters above the heavens where the decisive source of sustenance was not such a place. The prophet Zechariah therefore speaks to all when he promises God's heavenly bounty of rain to all those who will worship the Lord in Jerusalem on the Feast of Booths. This is the favor the Lord extends to those who acknowledge him. It is the gift of life from the Lord of life. The survivors of death-dealing battles can appreciate its value. Now the relation of the Haftarah to the calendar. This Haftarah shows an old connection between the festival of Sukkot and rituals for rain. Any of the earth's communities that does not make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to bow low to the king, lord of hosts, shall receive no rain. This pronouncement excludes only Egypt, a land that does not, that does not depend on rainfall, which is promised an appropriate scourge. That comes from Ibn Ezra and Radak. Rain rituals associated with water libations and with the four species gathered on Sukkot, Leviticus 23, verse 40, are mentioned separately in early rabbinic sources, see Tosepta Sukkot 3.18 and Babylonian Talmud Ta'ani, Ta possibly, 2b, respectively. Some of these rites may go back to early biblical times, but only during the era of the Second Temple do they seem to have been integrated into a multi-level service of celebration and supplication. So, as you may know, Sukkot is celebrated. Uh, all holidays have a traditional second day in the diaspora. And the uh, second Haftarah is from 1 Kings 8, 2 through 21. So I'd just like to read a couple of short paragraphs about this. That the image of the cloud in the shrine in 1 Kings 8, 2 through 21 is a sign of God's abundant presence. It draws on old themes of providential guidance, recalling the cloud and the fire that attended the Israelites in the wilderness by day and by night. But it also integrates that image of nomadic movement with another figure of divine presence and protection. In that figure, 
God's presence in the shrine overarches the city as a sukkah, providing shade and shelter for all. Isaiah 4, 5-6 Thus the imagery of divine indwelling in Solomon's shrine is raised to a new level, giving the blessing of God's permanent presence on earth. So there's an interesting Rashi here, and it talks about uh, something interesting. So two things I want to read from 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 2. In the month of Etanim, so that is another name for the month of Tishri. So Yonatan, a famous uh, sage, rendered these words, etanim bahag, as follows. In the month which the ancients called the first month, on the festival, and at present it is the seventh month, i.e., since the Torah was given, Exodus 12, Shemot 12, sorry, I take that back, that's not when the Torah was given. Since the Torah was given, well, that's when actually the first commandment was started. So yeah, it's referring to Exodus 12, when God changed the calendar, it is written in reference to the month of Nisan that Nisan is now the first of the months. So Tishri will then be called the seventh month. So the calendar, picture a circular calendar like a clock, was rotated six notches, right? So now Nisan from creation was the seventh month. Now it becomes the first, which makes Tishri, which was the first, now the seventh. So if you're reading from Exodus 12 onward, you have to go by that new calendar where God said to Moshe, this moon is now the the first month to you. So it was Nisan when they were released, when, when he shared this with Moshe. So Nisan was, was now the new year because it was the, the month that Israel became a nation and was released from Egypt. Now the second Rashi I'd like to read, this is fascinating. And this is going to require a whole nother podcast on the parochet and the ripping of the parochet. Do you know, Simcha, how the parochet was ripped when Yeshua was... Uh, what do you mean how it was ripped? Well, what direction? Oh, from the bottom up. But, no, no, from the top down. Right, from the, from top, the down. top down. Because but you would normally think it would be from the bottom up. Right, you would normally think down. it would be from the bottom up, but it is from the top down to show that it was miraculous. Do you happen to know when the parochet was also ripped in the Tanakh? No. The days of Uziahu, Uzziah, when he went into the temple really? incorrectly. Yeah. So, and we'll wow. have to find for you whether it was historical or actually in Scripture. And then in Scripture, there are references three times to an earthquake that also took place in the days of Uziahu. They were not good omens. So, I wanted to talk briefly about in the sanctuary. This is a tangent to Sukkot, but it was so fascinating. So, in verse 8 of uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 8, it says... That the staves were so long, the staves that held the ark were so long that the ends of the staves were seen from the holy place before the sanctuary, and they were not seen without or outside, and they are there unto this day. So Rashi says, the ends of the staves were seen, long poles, in the curtain which was against the entrance of the sanctuary, in the Amatark scene. So that is 
an ama is a measurement of about more or less, uh, let's say, three feet, just to give you a modern conception. You might think that they, the amatark scene is basically a hallway that the high priest would use to enter into the Holy of Holies, but would prevent the Holy of Holies from being opened and visible to anybody in the holy place. So you might think that they that staves tore through the curtain and protruded on the other side. Not true. The text therefore states, and they were not seen without. How is this possible? Now this is getting a little bit more visual and intimate. So they were pushing and bulging similar. This is Rashi I'm quoting. <laughs> they were pushing and bulging similar to two breasts of a woman as it says, he lies between my breasts. Song of Songs 1, verse 13. I just find that fascinating. So, moving on. We've covered uh, the Haftarot for, and that is in the Haftarah for uh, Sukkot Day 2. So, uh, I think that's probably all we're going to try to cover for Sukkot. I uh, hope you're having a wonderful Chag Sameach. One last thing I did want to share is that, I think I may have mentioned this earlier, that uh, Tabernacles is actually not the best translation for Sukkot. It actually is booths or huts. So uh, Sukkot is, uh, now you had an interesting idea. We were talking about how in Hebrew, a sukkah is, is this structure we're, we're sitting in right now. But um, there's really not, like you don't build a sukkah in English. Like there's not. Uh, well, I was thinking about that, but. but you know, in Israel, uh, they have these fields, and people do build a temporary dwelling. If you're going to go harvesting, right. you, have, you have something that you're building right. to have some sort of a shelter from the heat of the day or at night. Very good. Yeah. So, so a sukkah could be um, it's an RV. used. It's an RV. <laughs> It's the Jewish RV. <laughs> the ancient, ancient. Uh, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. But it's, it's um, temporary, but it also is mobile because you can move it along the way. Right. That's true. That's yeah. true. Very good. So one other thing I did want to share about the lulav. So uh, the blessing over the lulav and etrog is recited while standing. So please don't do it seated. The lulav is held in the right hand with the three myrtle branches on the right, the two willow on the left, and the etrog in the left hand. With the hands close together, the etrog is held with the pitom, the tip, which could turn into a flower if it was left on the tree long enough, facing down while reciting the bracha, and then turned over so that the pitom points up. The lulav and etrog are not taken on Shabbat, mainly because Shabbat has its own uh, magnificence and splendor, and maybe and because of, yeah, it's a carrying issue, um, halakhically, but, um, anyway, so I don't know though, you know, one of my rabbi friends was telling me this year that the whole idea of reversing the etrog before you say the blessing is this is one of those blessings that you're supposed to, you're supposed to say a blessing, um, before Wait, before you do the action? Right. You, you say the blessing. You don't when you light the and candles. And you do. Well, right. So lighting light Shabbat candles. candles, washing your hands, and taking the Lulav and Etrog are three exceptions. Right. Because normally you want to say the blessing, then do the action. Okay. These are 
things that we are in the middle of doing the action or have to do the action first and then we say the blessing. So specifically with the etrog, you're taking them up, you're saying the blessing, but you hold the etrog in a different manner. You hold it upside down. And then after you say the blessing, you complete the action. Meaning that you really haven't, you're holding off on flipping it right side up until so you can say i said the blessing and then i completed the whole thing right mm -hmm. so but let's talk about this for a second so is an etrog upside down if the if the stem called the ukats i believe it is in hebrew or oketz is up and the pitom is down or and the pitom is really the pistol if the pistol the pitom is down uh and then turned up it seems to me like it would be backwards so you really have to have an etrog probably to visualize this, but if you look at an etrog or have one or you've seen one, uh, you could understand uh, why it looks more right side up with the green stem on top and the pitom face down because this is how it probably grows from the tree. Like yeah, so because it's heavy because, because yeah, it can't, it doesn't stand right. Up. It would have to be held on like by the the dense green stem which is called ukats. So I don't actually agree with what I just read in the book. Mm. I would hold it with the pitom up mm. and then flip it to complete the action. Anyway, just an interesting halakha there. Is this a question sort of like, how do you put the mezuzah on? Does yeah. Does it face in? Does it face out? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like the mezuzah. So I just want to read one last thing about the lulav. So... The Mishnah instructs that the lulav is weighed back and forth at two moments during the recitation of Hallel, at Hodu when we thank God for God's goodness, and at Hoshiana when we ask God's help. The Babylonian Talmud explains that the waving is in six directions, representing the four winds as well as heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. Menachot 62b. Customs vary, with some waving the lulav front and back, right and left, up and down, and others waving it in a circular motion, to the front, right, back, left, and up and down. So, whichever minhag or custom is yours, enjoy the holiday. Find the or makif, the surrounding light that hopefully you've been bringing down since Elul 1. You're approaching the end of Sukkot. We're in the middle right now. But at the end of Sukkot, you've accomplished 52 days of repentance, celebration, uh, opening of the gates, closing of the gates, sealing, and rejoicing. So, May your Chag be a happy one, Chag Sameach, and blessings to you all. Thank you for joining in the footsteps of the Messiah. God bless you.